This episode is presented by Gorgeous. Did you know that loyal customers are nine times more likely to convert compared to first-time shopper? That's why exceptional customer service is so important for your retention and growth. Gorgeous combines all of your communication channels, including email, SMS, social media, live chat, and phone, all on a one platform and gives you an organized view of all tickets. This saves your support team hours per day and makes managing customer orders a breeze. Book a demo at Gorgeous.com. That's G-O-R-G-I-A-S.com today and mention the Consumer VC podcast for two months free. Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com, to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. My guest today is Heather Hartnett, CEO and general partner at Human Ventures. Human Ventures is an early stage venture studio and venture fund in New York City that backs and builds consumer technology companies. Some of their portfolio companies include Tiny Organics, Toucan, and On Deck. In this episode, we discuss their Humans in the Wild program for founders, what is the human needs economy, and how companies are building community. Without further ado, here's Heather. Heather, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? Mike, it's so good to be here. I'm doing really well. I can't complain. As we were just talking about, um, New York is really exciting and you're feeling a lot of a lot of good energy in the city. So I'm feeling good. <laughs> that's that's fantastic. That, that's fantastic to hear. Here in LA, we're supposed to open things up a lot more June 15th. So I'm kind of counting nice. down the days for that. So let's first talk a little bit about Human Ventures. How did it start? Where did you come up with the idea? Yeah, great. Well, Human Ventures is um, an early stage venture firm, and we focus on pre-seed to Series A investing in consumer tech and product companies. The areas that we focus on, we call the human needs economy. So that's largely in the areas of health and wellness, future of work, community-based businesses. And we've um, we've co-built and invested now in over 40 companies and have an enterprise value of our portfolio of over $3 billion. So we're off to the races and, you know, really started as in a unique way. So we actually didn't start with a fund. Human Ventures started as what we call a startup studio, where we would co-build companies with entrepreneurs and in areas that we thought were, you know, that were transforming uh, the way that we do business. And we could pick really interesting founders who could kind of see through the matrix and, and give them the resources and support team to be able to build on that. Yeah. So since then, the, the human ventures model has evolved quite a bit. And so has the New York ecosystem. That's awesome. A few things to dive in on there. One is when you think about the human needs economy, what's some of the differences when you're analyzing some of these companies of a need versus maybe a want or a nice to have and kind of unpacking what, you know, the human needs economy actually means to you. 
you know, we take into consideration where consumers are spending their time and attention and obviously their money. And we feel that, you know, when technology has largely outpaced the human conditions in a lot of sense, right? We are now addicted to our phones. Technology has brought about a lot of opportunity, but it's also taken us away from some of the more um, human-focused areas of how we do work and, and how we live. So I think about the human needs economy starting from the individual, it's your health and your wellness. So where is technology now playing a, a positive role in tech enabling your healthcare, giving you access to healthcare where you otherwise wouldn't, um, uncovering verticals have not been serviced before. Then your wellness, right? So healthcare largely is actually sick care. People go for healthcare when they when they have an ailment, but how do we prevent more of that? So that's the wellness area. And then you know, what's your livelihood and how is the, what is the future of work looking like? These are all massive human needs that we feel technology now being a very ubiquitous uh, platform is able to tech enable, you know, these, these industries are being able to become tech enabled. No, that's really interesting. So it's really thinking about the internet and tech enabled products that could actually help impact our bodies and also our just our overall self-care that actually isn't tied to those products, right? That actually is about your body itself. Yeah, it's a fun time right now in venture capital as well because consumer needs are being met by both products and services, right? So technology can enable that, but also there are consumer products that are reinventing protein or how we look at, um, you know, uh, ways of of um, at home testing kits, you know, testing our glucose, monitoring our thyroid, um, testing for uh, sexual transmitted infections, you know, these types of things. So I think that, you know, products and technology and consumer right now have to be both taken into consideration. Since you began Human Ventures, like how has it evolved? Maybe what are some of the changes in your thinking about it could be trends, it could be topics, or it could be your overall model? I mean, a large part of what makes a successful startup ecosystem is the concentration of founders building together and helping one another, right? San Francisco has had that for a long time and some other communities and and ecosystems are now starting to really um, build up. I think New York is very unique because now we're starting to see multiple generations of companies and founders, you know, have success and that just compounds the, um, the ability to build a business in this. So when we started Human Ventures, we saw the opportunity to make New York an even bigger hub for founders and specifically founders building together who wanted to have that compounding effect. And so there are so many industries in New York that have been, you know, this has been the epicenter for, and now they're all seeing um, immense growth through technology adoption. So I think that, that those two things together are what are propelling New York to be a very exciting ecosystem. You know, we when we first had that thesis, we said, what are the things that we need to surround founders with? So we had a physical location. We had, um, you know, uh, operators, you know, on staff that could help really get a, a business off the ground. Um, what founders were really wanting to do um, as the ecosystem gets to be much more developed and much more efficient is how can you how can you use a business design process to really get to the crux of if the business should exist or not? And so when you're working with entrepreneurs at the earliest stages, I think what we saw, the white space that we saw was not just funding and not just the office space, but also can you um, create a network of other founders and critical thinkers to help really flush out ideas in that very beginning state so that you're 
talking to 200 customers, you're understanding if there's a real need to be filled, and then you're launching a product or company uh, with a lot of groundswell uh, behind you. How has New York in the past few years, how is it different to Silicon Valley, different to maybe Los Angeles or, or other venture ecosystems in terms of what it's also becoming known for? That's a good question. Um, so when I started Human, I started with my partner, Joe Marchese, who's a serial entrepreneur. He's been an entrepreneur in the in the New York ecosystem, well, in LA, and then he's in the New York ecosystem for a long time, specifically in media and advertising. And this is um, specifically relevant because we're in the consumer VC here, you know, but advertising and media is actually an unbelievable way to predict consumer trends, right? Where people are buying ads, how people are are listening to companies' messaging, building a brand, those fundamentals of the biggest businesses that we know today now have to be applied from the earliest days of starting a company. And so I think we're at this time now where the titans of industries, you know, whether it be media, legal, finance, it's all merging with what Silicon Valley used to be, which was really focused around technology. So the excitement that I have around New York and specifically some of the areas that we're investing in around fintech and health tech and and future of work really comes with that connected tissue of people who have been building in these industries for decades, but now they're understanding the importance of technology and how to to scale and reach more people and, and uncover those opportunities. So finding new talent, right? It's not just the talent that's an engineer who came out of Google and has been there, or it's not just, you know, kind of San Francisco's version of what um, a startup founder should look like. Now we're seeing uh, people spin out of GE or spin out of Goldman Sachs and start companies? Like, How are you evaluating talent for other industries? And I think that's a big change that New York has brought to the landscape. I also wanted to understand as well, Like, I know obviously part of Human, which I know you touched on, you have a venture studio, which is very much part of your core. What is a venture studio? And how is Human's venture studio maybe a little bit different from, let's say, I had on a couple of the investors from, for example, Alicorp. And so I would love to just understand a little bit of how you think about the, the venture studio. We call Human a business creation platform. And there are three distinct uh, areas to that. We have a true venture studio, which I'll get into, where we actually co-build companies with founders. We take some founder equity, we really lean in, and that's largely driven by Joe, who is the repeat founder. You should always have the founders driving that process. Then we have an incubator, which is essentially a systematic way to bring in pre-seed founders and be the first institutional capital into very early stage startups, but they're a little bit more mature than just an idea, right? They've already started in a direction. And then we have the venture fund, which looks a lot more like a traditional fund where we invest pre-seed to series A and we have the traditional financing mechanism to be able to really, you know, identify founders early and, and make those investments. Those three components, I think, are what's needed to truly capture the value of the early stage ecosystem. Because you have to be able to see opportunity where, you know, where founders are building, get comfortable investing with conviction ahead of the market. You know, and so having our incubator program, we get to build with these founders for 100 days. We get to know them really well and make those pre-seed investments. And then you guys actually build some stuff. If you don't see it out there and people aren't building what you know you think should exist, you get to actually build it. And so those three components are what make Human Ventures a business creation platform and makes it much more unique than just a venture fund or just an incubator or just a studio. So I'll say that that's, that's where we sit. My observation of the studio landscape over the past six, seven years has really evolved from, you know, I think there are 
I'm oversimplifying, but there are two main directions that you see studios go in. One is the ideas are generated from within. The studio is putting in, call it two to $5 million. They're baking the companies a little bit further. They're getting to a certain product market fit. And then they hire in a management team to be able to take that company and scale it fast. And they have capital partners to allocate it. The second version is how are you building products and services and the ability to bring in founders earlier and then create the ecosystem around them to help accelerate you know, when they find a company that they want to build. And we fall into the latter category. We said we want to find founders earlier and earlier in their journey and uh, you know, high caliber founders, multiple time founders, very sought after founders, but have you know, enough conviction around them in the beginning to be the first check-in and add value and add value in the most pivotal time, which is usually before anybody wants to touch it. (laughs) With that strategy on the business creation platform, which you've uh, developed, how has COVID impacted that? Because of course you're incubating uh, these companies at a very, very early age uh, stage. You optimize for collaboration, which I'd imagine during COVID that could be pretty challenging or rather different. You have to find different ways to solve the problem. But we'd love to kind of understand how you had to pivot or just some of the overall impacts of COVID. Yeah. Well, our first Humans in the Wild cohort program that we were going to launch, like the official was going to be March uh, 17th, 2020. (laughs) And so, so we had to make the call. Do we pull it or do we go virtual? And to Evan Cohen and Elise King, who run the program's credit, they said, let's, let's bring it virtual and let's do the whole program. And it came at a time where every founder was largely looking for community. They were all in their living room in isolation. It couldn't have been a better time to forge um, you know, lasting relationships and really be the essence of what we're obsessed with, which is how do you build true community amongst founders so that they are thinking about helping one another all of the time. And they're creating a portfolio of founders who want to help each other. That's an exponential effect of value for us, right? So we went online. There's some big pros, right? We've been able to take founders from all over the country, not just be in New York. And there are some cons, like being in an office building together, there's a palpable momentum that happens. So I'm very much looking forward to getting back and building together in person. But I think what we were forced to do was serendipity wasn't happening on accident. We had to really think about the program and how we were focusing our programming to allow the founders to go deep with one another pretty fast. So cut through all of the formalities, really understand who the people are, who you're building with, and then also become invested in what they're building. So their success is your success. As we kind of open up here, I know... New York is is starting to open up, which is fantastic. How are you thinking about coming out of this period? Are you still going to be looking at companies from around the country and they can even stay local? Um, they don't have to come to New York or you know go back towards your maybe traditional format or rather what you previously had envisioned before COVID happened? Yeah, so a couple different things. One, on the investing side, I absolutely think that people have gotten comfortable making investments after many Zoom calls, not having to meet in person. You know, um, we have developed processes to be able to um, 
like I said, go deep fast with founders, try to build alongside them. The other thing is the Humans in the Wild program, which is our, you know, the, I'll just touch on it. The, the program is a hundred day program. It's about 13 weeks. Uh, it's thematically focused. So everyone in this cohort that's happening right now is building in, in health and wellness and specifically areas of verticalized healthcare, female healthcare, and mental healthcare. So um, nothing is competitive. So everyone feels collaborative, but they're all in the same stage. And we've been able to concentrate our advisor groups and our speakers and our product experts all in the phase that they're in so that they can really add value during that time. We also have a founder coach in residence who works with the founder to uncover their personality and you know how they should build up their early team and you know give them some self-awareness about what they're great at and what they might stink at. And I think that's a, a very unique uh, aspect to the program. So I say those programming elements because we have been very thoughtful about how we develop the way that we work with founders to be effective digitally or in person. And I think that's going to continue, you know, post COVID where we can get to the heart of who that founder is, what their motivations are for building that business. And there's something that we call build velocity, which is, can you really uh, assess how fast founders can rapidly iterate around their product and their customer. And I think that's the single important metric for us to evaluate in the earliest stages when there isn't any product, there isn't any revenue, you know, there's no spreadsheet to evaluate how are you looking at the founder, the market and their build velocity in between. On building teams um, and the founders as they build out their teams, as we come out of COVID, of course, everyone's remote right now. But as we come out of COVID, do you think that you're still going to be comfortable, you know, if a founder builds out their team remote first? Because I know that those, especially those early stages are so critical and so crucial and kind of having everybody in maybe the same room and being able to, you know, hash things down on a whiteboard, for example. Are you comfortable with founders um, actually having remote teams or, or do they have to be in the, in the same area? I think it completely depends on what the product is, what the focus area is and who the founder is. So, you know, one thing's for certain with remote, you have to have a founder who is incredible at communication, whether that's through documentation, it's through agreements, it's through collaborative tools or whatever. There has to be some level of, um, of immaculate communication where people know that they're on the same team and that they're all running towards the same goal. What are some strategies that maybe you have thought about and that have like executed in order to help build culture remotely because it's because it's so challenging yeah i think not to be afraid of implementing things that i mean for lack of a better term here it's that are create the human side of things we created stand-ups that um you know especially in the heart of covid we created stand-ups that uh, were basically a check-in to make sure that everybody was feeling connected. They had ability to to say what was you know on their mind. That they had a safe space to bring up um, things that could be really difficult. And then we started to have a round robin of one person on the team uh, leading the stand-up, and it actually couldn't be about work. So we learned things about themselves, whether they were jazz musicians or they loved, you know, live concerts and walked us through that. Or we did you know, all these different things that might sound trivial or might sound like a time that was wasted. It's 15 minutes in the morning that it was so, so pivotal to getting to know one another and making sure to just reinforce the culture every single time. Then, you know, for human, we have something that we call the guide to being human, which is our our values. And everything that we do has to tie back to one of those values. So it's not just, 
you know, a poster on the wall, but it's really, uh, they've been co-created by the team and everything that we do is pretty intentional about how we scale. So I mean, those are some concrete things that we can help founders with and think through how to, to always be setting the vision, the mission and the values. Uh, it's gotten kind of, you know, wrote now. So you have to, you have to think about different ways of, of implementing it. We invest in a company called Murmur and Murmur is um, the first collaborative tool to make agreements within a company. And so this is something that I think is going to be instrumental to change um, how companies view scaling their culture. So people have the ability to um, propose an agreement, uh, edit agreement, have it go through that process. And it becomes, you know, it becomes part of the constitution of that, um, that company, which I think is a really important way of addressing it. And so backing up, what was your attraction to focusing on companies at the earliest stages? I think that the biggest opportunity to create value is at the earliest stages, right? It's where even if you're a multiple time founder, there is a point in which you don't know yet if the company is working. And if you can get there together with an investor, you can forge that partnership and really have that trust from the beginning. So, you know, um, I love working with founders who are not building for what the landscape will be right now or tomorrow, but actually in the next six to 10 years. And that's identifying founders in a very different way than looking at what is already what is already proven out, what is already able to be measured by a spreadsheet. You know, I think the best companies that have been built, you know, are really off the backs of that first money in. It's who are the partners in the beginning who could see the the vision of that founder. I joke that, you know, um, founders are 10 years out in the future. VCs have to kind of be in five years out in the future. A lot of the money that goes into VCs are kind of five years behind, but we're, you know, you have to be able to bridge that gap. And I love being able to identify the founders who can see through the matrix, who can see through where those markets are headed and then, you know, able to, to rapidly iterate. But I think really good early stage investors are able to get, get out of their own way and understand when you see that that person is going to know more than them um, and then just figure out where you can actually be of value. Because venture has become a late stage game, right? There's so many opportunities later stage to make money. And so um, I think that the the bigger opportunities for value creation are in the earliest stages. And that's where my edge is, right? It's it's really identifying talent six to 10 months ahead of the market and then getting them to a point where then the market understands that value. I love how you think about as well uh, balancing in terms of what your job is and identifying talent at the very, very earliest stages. But what is your evaluation process then for founders? I grew up in a family of entrepreneurs and I learned to get comfortable taking calculated risks um, when there's an opportunity to solve complex problems. And so, you know, when I moved out to the Bay Area, I was exposed to a whole new side of company building and that was really investing in, in other company builders, right? So, Prior to launching Human, I sourced for sourced you know investments for Lightspeed and City Light Capital and and other funds, and so I started to get an idea of what funds were looking for in in companies. And a common thread that I really see, and I think it's not talked about enough, is what's the thread that they actually invest in? What are the founders' characteristics that they're looking for that um, that they haven't really articulated? Because so many people say it's the market or the space or the area, and that definitely has to be there. But when it comes down to it, you're really investing in the team. So I said, how can we really break down 
what that looks like. What are some of the intangible um, intangible qualities that we're looking for in founders? And can we create process around that? So we do, we look at, um, you know, definitely experience, you know, so that has a portion of the weight, but it's it's more around skills and personality traits and then why they're the best ones to build in the market they're building. So founder market fit is absolutely the most important the most important thing for us. And, and the way that we get there is a little bit unique and we're developing systems to be able to do that in a repeated fashion. And, you know, it, it takes a little bit of time to tell if you're right, but then once you do see those patterns, you're able to, to redefine pattern recognition. It's not always the direct correlation to the industry that they're building in. A lot of times it could be the skill set. For an example, um, product-driven founders, I think, do really well in health tech because you have to be relentless about um, understanding what the the actual user flow is um, and then iterating very fast and also being able to have complex systems of, of uh, the healthcare you know compliance and, and things. So having a very product driven founder is I think an important starting point for any health tech company, um, you know digital healthcare in general. Uh, so, so that skill set could be translated, you know, obviously it's really important to have somebody on the founding team who understands the medical side of it and the clinical operations. So you can scale that pretty fast. Um, but I do think that the product driven founder needs to start in that area. I wanted to also touch on, you know, in consumer, I feel like the word community kind of gets thrown around a lot. Um, where companies that build community you need to invest in community-led companies or community-led brands. What does the word community mean to you? Um, and and how do you think about um, companies? Because especially since you focus on the very earliest stages, how do you think about community at that stage? Yeah, we've gone so far as to say that this is a category that we're even thinking about focusing on. And you see a brand who has built a, a community and it, and it makes for a very different company than, you know, somebody who has been able to perfect marketing on, on Facebook or, or Google and be able to sell direct-to-consumer business. So we say the next version of direct-to-consumer is actually direct-to-community. That's the new D2C. You know, you almost have a cult-like following with some of the brands in the earliest stages. We have a company called Loopy, which is a um, alternative-based protein bar. And you might say, oh, there's a lot of bars out there. Um, this brand and, and what the founders stand for and the ingredients that are completely authentic and everything have created such a cult-like following in the segmentation that they have reached. And um, and I think it's, that's something that you have to do if you have a consumer company. You need to know who your audience is. You have to know who your customer is. And then you have to maniacally follow them to understand what the next product is that they might want for expansion. But I'll go back to the kind of... I said that I was obsessed with building community and I am. And I think a true community adds to your well-being. It betters your wellness. The common thread of a community is that there's something that everybody relates to one another on. And I think this term has been thrown out a lot. And you can think of a community, people say, oh, I've built one that's one to many. It's the brand talking to a bunch of people. That to me is not a community. Community is when many to many start talking to one another, when they start to understand. You know, you could almost take that group of people and they've, they've given each other so much trust that you can introduce a new product. They would almost blindly adopt that product too because there's been such trust that's been um, established amongst the the peers, not necessarily the brand who's putting it out. I totally agree. I mean, sometimes I feel like community gets mixed up with audience sometimes um, in that I think audience is, as you say, like one to many. 
Um, whereas a community, it's the brand almost becomes a vessel for actually to inib- to to initiate maybe interaction or collaboration with 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 others, um, uh, with, with other customers or or what have you. That to me is like much more of a uh, community, uh, it, it, in my opinion. Um, I mean, it does. It also doesn't seem like you know, like every brand needs to have a community. Is that fair to say? I think whether you think it or not, you you have tapped on a, in a tribes in the beginning days of building a brand. You need to be very focused on who your community is. <laughs> Maybe they don't all have to know one another, but in this day and age, for a consumer product, I think to to have. I don't know, an X factor, it really is tapping into something that's beyond just what the product is servicing. It's also addressing a human need. And whenever you have that, then you're able to relate with others who that helps too. Whether it's the early versions of Slack where all of a sudden you had these, you know, these um, devotees of Slack and they loved it. And that became, you know, the community that informed the next product build. And, and so I think that if you really go, I could probably find that dynamic of building a following in the beginning to almost anything that's been successful. That's a great point. That's a great point. And I also appreciate the Slack example. Um, how do you also think about authenticity in a brand? Well, I love when the founders are part of the customer set that they're building for. And, you know, we see this, I think, probably most prevalently in Tiny Organics, which is a company of ours, which um, you know very well. I was just thinking about them, actually. Yeah. yeah. I was just thinking about them. Founded by Sophia and Betsy. And, you know, Betsy was pregnant as they were launching their company. And it's now a direct-to-consumer, um, you know, baby brand. Uh, they deliver... Um, organic baby food and they have subscribers, but really I think the product that they're serving is this trusted nutrition for moms and dads um, to be able to offer their kids at the earliest stages. And so that level of authenticity, they, you know, Betsy would never put a product out that she wouldn't feed her own child. And that's something that comes through in the brand and their product testing and how they're scaling things and how they're working with their co-manufacturers. Um, I just think that you have to have a, a founder who really understands the market they're trying to serve. And that makes sense. And also, in terms of building community, what I appreciate about like their story is they actually met with moms in, in small groups around the country. And I thought that was a really, really interesting way to, uh, to build community as well. Yeah, let me ask you. You you've interviewed now hundreds of hundreds of uh, consumer, you know, investors and founders. Who do you think's doing that really well? Who do you think is speaking to their audience in a way that's building that community? I think like some of those interesting ones. Like I think Betsy and and Sophia. I really enjoyed learning about how they were able to build community, especially at the early stages with those dinners. I think another one that comes to mind is uh, Jake Liu, the founder of Outer. And what he did, so Outer is, for listeners, if you haven't caught the episode, Outer is a outdoor furniture company. What he thought about was he didn't love showrooms. I, I don't like showrooms either. But what he did instead, and I thought I think this is also building community, is he actually went on next door, I think, in Craigslist, and he actually offered people discounts to Outer if they actually use their backyards as showrooms. And so then you actually have neighbors coming in 
and checking out if they're interested in outer they can go to you know spots down on the outer website that say hey you can go here um to this person's backyard and you can check out outer and see and feel the product and i think that kind of just also builds community too because it's also these people you know not having to go far it's in their neighborhoods and also you have that level of trust too that i think was originally started of course by airbnb with you know going into somebody's house or or experiencing that. But I always thought that was a really, really interesting story in terms of um, how people could really see and view the product. Because that is the trouble with Digitally Native. It's really hard, if it's a tangible product, to be able to actually see it. So I always thought that was a really interesting way to kind of help build community for a product. I like that. Yeah, I like that. So how does the fund tie into the studio? On the fund side, are you investing mostly in the companies that are coming out of the studio? So our platform and approach evolves as the founders evolve, right? So when we first started Human, there needed to be a place for builders to build. We created that platform. Then as the company started to raise subsequent rounds of funding, the fund emerged. Then this kind of pre-seed asset class started to emerge where founders needed to really have the operational support to get them to that first price funding round, the milestones to be able to do that. So we can continue to to truly evolve our model, which I think is super important. I did, you know, I talked about the three legs of the stool where we have the true uh, co-build, we've got the the incubator program and we have the fund. And I want to continue to build out all three of those, those legs of the stool to be able to capture the most value. But, you know, I think any really good platform, whether you be a fund, franchise or your studio, you're you're definitely seeing where the, the biggest needs are being unmet and how you can you can be there for the founders in that way. What is one thing that you would change about venture capital? I think we're building it. I mean we wanted to see a change in venture, so we're building the next generation platform that resonates with founders. You know, it's it's finding different types of founders who are building for unmet needs uh, in areas that are you know, we've been talking about for quite some time and, and after COVID now have become, uh, you know, unignorable. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. And I imagine in terms of the unmet needs, you know, in terms of COVID, I'd imagine that obviously accelerated since this was such a difficult period for so many people. Absolutely. And it's kind of, uh, it's kind of, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. You know, we, we were thinking about mental health and you thought it was a nice to have. It's not, it's a need to have. And now it's a need to have that employers are realizing that they can't not offer, right? Women's healthcare, we might hear about it a lot in the news. And so you think that it's kind of oversaturated. It is so nascent. Everything that's offered there, one in five women, you know, have uh, experienced UTIs and there's no remedy for it. And there's no way to test it fast. And there's no, you know, one in eight have thyroid challenges, Um, fertility, menopause, like all these areas that have just been underfunded and under innovated on. Um, people might think that it's niche, but it's 51% of the population and it is, you know, it's just being uncovered how much, you know, people kind of bared, <laughs> grinned and bared it. Now, now um, there's a lot of uh, opportunity there. No, absolutely. I totally agree. That's actually part of the reason why um, I'm doing the Stigma Summit, which is in July 1st. I think this episode will be released after it. We're focusing on um, UTI. We're focusing on sexual wellness, a femtech. Uh, cannabis, and just a lot of unmet needs um, in terms of products um, and services. So I'm really excited about that. I love that. I love the name of Stigma. You know, it's so interesting. You talk about consumer. The consumer trend is, 
you know, the biggest companies come when all of a sudden consumer behavior or sentiment shifts or zeitgeist shifts. And people think, I don't know why this didn't exist before. Well, it didn't exist before because people had didn't have an awareness of it. Either there wasn't information, there was a stigma around it, nobody talked about it. I think sexual wellness is, is a massive category that's that's going to be in five, 10 years. People are going to say, how come this wasn't just completely, uh, you know, out in the open and, and clinical and all this sort of, because there's so much stigma around it. And then when that lifts, um, the opportunities are uncovered. And not only that, I mean, anything related to femtech, I mean, also I feel like so much money goes towards, you know, white male entrepreneurs and not, you know, females, um, people of color. A lot of these opportunities um, kind of go unmet because they're actually not, they're not serving some of these populations. Oh, well, and you need the investors to be able to spot that that's even a problem. There's no reason why, uh, you know, a, a male VC should understand the pains of, you know, female UTI, recurring female UTIs. Um, but people don't think about, unless you have that lens, you're not going to see that that's a problem um, to, that needs to be fixed. You know, you might know about ED medication, and that's something that, you know, was was funded like mad because that's something that, oh, I, I get that. I get that that's a vice that's going to be, that's going to be need, you know, it's a need that's going to be met. No, that's a great point. That's a great point. What's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? You know, I knew you were going to ask me this question and I really thought about it. And there was one book um, a few years ago that had a massive impact on me personally. It's called When Breath Becomes Air. I have it right here. And When Breath Becomes Air is, um, it was written by a neurosurgeon who was all of a sudden uh, diagnosed with stage four cancer. And he had a very short amount of time to live. And here he was saving people's lives. And then he had to think in a very short amount of time what life really meant to him. And he goes through his process of finding meaning in a very short amount of time. And, you know, he he eventually passes away. And, and I just, it had such a profound impact on me. And I think that it's important for people to understand why they're doing what they're doing, what the motivating factors are. And sometimes it's, incredible to put that into perspective. And I, I will not say that it's a light read. It is, um, you know, it's a quick read, but it's definitely um, one that makes you very introspective. But those types of, of books, um, I'm really, I, I really seek out for that, you know, kind of guiding meeting in my life. And then a professional book, um, I'll have two. One has been Principles by Ray Dalio since the very early copies that I was able to, to get my hands on before it became public. I he has now synthesized, you know, the principles in in video form, in um, you know, iPad form and in little Instagram bites and everything. But really it's one that I think people should read, not only just for his principles, but also to think about your own framework, about how you make decisions and what you live by for both work and for professional. And then my second one is Venture Deals. I give Venture Deals that book by Brad Feld and um, in Jason Mendelson. I I give that to everyone, all the founders in our portfolio. And you know, people might think that they understand the terms. People might. I think there's a lot of you know people don't like to ask questions if they think that everybody should know the answer to them. So so reading something as as 101 as that is really important for for founders to um, understand a lot of the terms. What's the best piece of advice that you've received? You know, I have to go back to always what my parents tell me. And from a young age, um, uh, my parents always told me, you can't stop the waves, but you can learn to surf. And so I think that really always instilled um, in me an understanding and acceptance that we can't control everything that comes at us, but uh, we can control our reaction to it. And, uh, you know, especially this last year, I think it's shown that 
you have to surf those waves. There's just always going to be so much noise and to find, you know, kind of that constant and, and how to have equanimity while that's happening is, is the single most important thing you can do. I love that. I love that. I think that's a great, that's a great piece of advice. I love that you, you can't stop the waves. Really, really great. What's one piece of advice that you have for founders? We frequently use the term founder market fit. And one thing that you know, what that means to me is why that founder and why now? So I think that's something that's really important for leaders everywhere, but especially for founders who are walking into meetings with potential investors. As a founder, you should ask yourself that question all the time. Why me and why now? Um, You know, being authentic in this area, I think resonates deeply with people. Like, why is it that you're doing this? And and what is your edge there? Yeah, there's also a book there, Start With Why from Simon Sinek that that I really enjoy. Uh, the framework for really asking yourself why you, why should you be doing this? Yeah, I love that. I mean, why you, why now? And also like what's your edge or or unfair advantage as well, um, why you should be doing this. So um, I love that. And we'll also add start with why too to the book list. That's great. Heather, this has been so much fun. Thank you so much for your time. Mike, thank you very much. I really appreciate all that you've given back to the ecosystem. And I'm, you know, a religious listener and I love the people you have on. So it's been a, a true honor for me to be on. Thank you very much. And there you have it. It was so much fun having Heather on the show. You can follow her on Twitter at Heather Hartnett. I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone.